everybody, and welcome to another episode of The Rob Murgatroyd Show. Each week, I have conversations with some of the most fascinating people on the planet that can help you live a life of fulfillment. Speaking of fulfillment, if you want to hire me as your coach, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call to see if we are a good fit to help you create and design your dream life and business. That's robshowcoach.com. Before we get into today's episode, our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind event will be in Dubai and Abu Dhabi for the F1 race on November 16th to the 19th. So look, these trips are designed to get you out of your day-to-day, around some amazing entrepreneurs and provide bucket list experiences that will have you coming home re-energized to grow your business and bring your life to a whole new level. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. All right, let's jump into today's show. I would not say my mom or my dad are, were unconventional in any way. So um, my dad, tax lawyer, <laughs> my mom, librarian, like the straight and narrow. You rebelled. I rebelled. I'm the younger of two siblings. My, my older sister is a lawyer. I do think that this is something siblings unconsciously do is tr- in an attempt to distinguish themselves. If someone else is nailing that demographic of like, I am the lawyer, daughter of a lawyer, and you know, I, I'm smart and I'm ambitious. Like, I kind of had to do something different, but I also think it's just truly my nature. I can't do it the same way other people are doing it. So I do it through observation, I do it through questioning, and I think it created a very fertile ground to think differently about what was being handed to me and to rebel. Ellen, welcome to the show. Rob, thanks for having me here. I am super excited to have you here. And, you know, today's a double whammy Yale day. I've got a guy, a buddy, who... Um, exited the company for a lot of money, graduated Yale and moved to Florence and he's living here. So I have two Yale alums in the building. And I think a good place to start off would be your education, specifically starting with getting your uh, BA from Yale um, with a degree in English. So the question is, why English? (laughs) I've never gotten that question. I'm thrilled to be talking about this. So why English? I suspect if I was a child of the, you know, more contemporaneous times, I would have been diagnosed with some form of dyslexia or learning disability or something. In summary, I basically can't read. Um, I am the slowest adult reader that I've ever come across. And, um, and I, my, I'm the child, I'm the daughter of a librarian no, like the Dewey, mom, the Dewey Decimal System. That that kind of library. And my, my mom was a speed reader. You know, she could read a book a day. And um, my sister is just like my mom in that way. And she's a fast reader. And when we would go on vacations before the Kindle, they would bring suitcases full of books. <laughs> and I would bring like a magazine and barely make it through an article. And so it was a point of shame for me. But m- more than shame, I was thirsty for knowledge. and um, and, but I was so stymied by my slow reading. So I still just didn't understand this. I got to college and I was struggling to choose a major. And I went up and down the hallways of the university bookstore. And I was like, I'm going to pick my major based on which aisle 
has the most books that I want to have read in my life. And that was, you know, English major was a clear winner. Um, I, I wanted to have read the canon of literature. It, I didn't realize at the time, just being an English major did not ensure that I was suddenly going to be able to read. And so I ended up graduating from college. I hope none of my professors are listening now and rethinking the A minuses they gave me. But basically, um, I, uh, I, I only finished one book in college and it was Anna Karenina. It was because I was taking two classes at the same time that were both simultaneously reading Anna Karenina. And for that, I managed to finish that goddamn book. But every other book I was maybe halfway, three quarters of the way through, um, and, and kind of, you know, trying to be a synthetic thinker and still have valuable things to say, like in essays that I would write, but I couldn't read. And Cut to 2022. I'm really grateful for Audible because <laughs> Audible has synced up my thirst for knowledge and the stack of books I want to read with my ability to actually make it through them. And so now, you know, Audible taught me to read. I listen to books. And um, that's are you was. are you still struggling currently with it, or do you ha- now have hacks in place that allow you to read somewhat faster? Still struggle. Still struggle, no change. Yeah. I mean, the only thing that the two things have changed. One is that I'm less inflamed. So in high school and college, I was a bit inflamed. I was still eating gluten. Um, I wasn't getting good quality sleep. I was on birth control pill at various phases. I, I was not physiologically in a state of balance. And that did impact my ability to stay focused and to have attention. I was also stressed and overwhelmed and unmoored, and all of that impacted my ability to focus. I'm less inflamed now and I'm really engaged with what I'm reading. So at least my retention is better, but the speed is really slow. Well, this begs the question, how does one get into and graduate one of arguably the best colleges in the world with this as a background? I mean, probably the real answer is a whopping dose of privilege. But I think that I grew up in a, a town in the suburbs of New York City where I got to go to a good public high school. I had great teachers. And there's a difference between like how well you can read and how smart you are. I think I'm smart and I think I'm hardworking. And um, <clears throat> and I usually have managed to show up to classes with relatively original ideas and synthesizing a lot of different ways of approaching a problem. And, and I think that that helped distinguish me and no one caught the fact that I could not read for shit. Did anybody know your roommates or friends or anybody around you know. And the reason why I'm taking so much time on this is somebody is listening right now, guaranteed, either has that problem or has some other version of that problem, i.e. I'm shameful about my bankruptcy, my divorce, my dad, my whatever, right? But you rose above it in so many ways, which we're going to talk about. But did you let anybody around you know or did you hide it? I wasn't hiding anything, but there was no conversation about it. And I don't think I ever stepped back to be like, this is actually pathologic. Um, Mm. So I just, you know, we're all different. Like I was a slow runner and a slow reader. Right. I didn't really think anything was worth like talking to the grownups about it. Got it. (laughs) This is what it is to be me. All right. So then after that, you, uh, a Yale degree wasn't enough for you. You're a glutton for punishment. You wanted more. So you went to Columbia. And you got your um, medical degree, your MD uh, in psychiatry. Back then, 
What do you think a psych, what did you think a psychiatrist did for a living and compare and contrast that to what you actually think now a psych or what, you know, a psychiatrist actually does, or you specifically do. Mm, mm, Okay. So yeah, I found myself in medical school quickly. I would say within the first couple of hours, I was like, I clearly have to drop out. And I felt so completely out of alignment with, um, I, I felt like I was different from other people. Like I, I had now actually, even though I couldn't read, I had really grown into an English major and advanced college seminars about the complexities of the human condition. That was my jam at that point. So you get to medical school and you're suddenly learning acid base ratios in nephrology. And I was unengaged. I found that to be uninteresting. I didn't really want problems that had an answer. I wanted complexities, vagaries, nuances of this human experience that's hard to quantify, but endlessly fascinating and important. And so, you know, someone could have saved me a lot of time when I was contemplating other specialties. I was thinking like, you know, should I be an orthopedic surgeon or an ER doc or a dermatologist? Like this is what I was contemplating. And someone should have just slapped me and been like, no, no, no. You were an English major, save yourself the trouble. You're going to end up in psychiatry. So psychiatry makes sense because it is the one field where you can be with those vagaries and complexities of the human condition. I had maybe two competing models of what I thought it would be like. One was something that really did not turn me on, which was the kind of pharmacologist, like inpatient pharma jockey, where you're just reacting constantly. You're saying, okay, this person has these symptoms. It equals this diagnosis, which equals indicating this medication. And then they come back drooling, having gained weight. Now they're insulin resistant. Um, They're not really feeling that much better. And you shrug and you say, okay, let's increase the dose or let's add something to address the side effects. You just keep piling on and and developing this cocktail of medication for patients. This was such a hard pass for me that did not feel like that, you know, cardinal principle of do no harm. And then I had one mentor in medical school named Deborah Cabanis, and she was a Freudian psychoanalyst. (laughs) So old school style approach. But she was the first person in my whole medical school experience where I was like, I could see myself with her life and liking it. Um, She was a private practice psychiatrist and she had a relationship to academia, but she also had her private practice in her office where she saw patients. And I could tell that she found her work meaningful, that she was fulfilled by it, that she wasn't constantly burned out. Um, working overnight shifts or having to be in the OR at 6.30 in the morning. And so I could identify with her lifestyle and the problems that she was faced with. And, and that appealed to me. And that's what made me choose psychiatry. Neither of those two models is what I do today. Um, it turns out I had to create my own path in order to practice in a way that feels truly in alignment. All right. We're going to get into what you're currently doing now, but um since you love to tell stories, I'm going to ask you to tell the story of the surgery rotation with a doc who removed uh, the appendix. And you're you're looking at this guy and you're like, well, this guy sits there all day and he removes appendix. Appendix is, is, is. Um, and he's got to, you know, he's got to know. So tell, tell that story. Cause I found that fascinating. Rob, because I love to tell stories. <laughs> you're such a, you're such a storyteller. That's what you're known for. It's in your wiki. A fast reader and a raconteur. <laughs> so um, 
I, I do. This was in my third year of medical school and you're going through your different rotations, getting a taste of each specialty. And I'm on my general surgery rotation and you're in the OR. It's probably midnight. We're doing um, an appendectomy where you remove someone's appendix and I'm bored. I'm curious. And I'm sitting there thinking like, well, this dude who's like in mid-career, he's probably given appendicitis quite a lot of thought. And you're just shooting the shit in surgery. Yep. You're yep. you're basically, the radio's playing and you're passing the time while you're doing these meticulous, tedious steps. Yeah. And <clears throat> I said like, well, why do you think people get appendicitis? And felt like a pretty innocent, reasonable, you know, like that was a, I don't have a sports metaphor here, like an easy pitch. <laughs> it was a softball. It was a softball. There we have it. So, um, <clears throat> and he really like shot me this glance and shut it down by saying, we don't ask why we just cut. Mm. And that for me was a perfect illustration of how I wasn't in alignment with conventional medicine. Um, there is a time and place for just cutting. You know, I'm really grateful to Western medicine for being able to heroically respond in the event of a heart attack, a car accident, when the shit hits the fan, thank goodness for this medical system that we have. But the vast majority of what we're grappling with in terms of our health are these chronic diseases, chronic <clears throat> degenerative diseases, and reacting to them, well, that by that point, it's too late. It's impacted your quality of life, and there's not really a good way to clean up the mess of chronic diseases. The only path that really reclaims our quality of life is prevention. And so... <clears throat> Like, I don't want to just cut. All I want to do is ask why. I am a New York Jew. Like, why is where I start, you know, and then why underneath that? And then several more layers of why. <laughs> I feel and, like there's got to be Harvey after that. Why Harvey? <laughs> so, <laughs> why? <laughs> why? I don't understand. Why? So I think that, um, you know, I just knew that I, I wasn't thinking about health in the same way as I was being taught to think. I was being taught to react. Even with mental health, it was like, okay, we just accept that this is true. Everyone's depressed. Everyone's anxious. No one can focus. We just accept it with a little bit of an assumption of like, it's genetic. It runs in your family. Mm -hmm. But honey, like these things are changing at a rate that does not make sense with genetics. Um, and it's not just an increase in screening. That's happening. And rates are increasing. And disability for mental health issues is increasing. So there's something environmental going on here, which is a red flag for that's preventable. If it's environmental and not genetic, it's something under our control to some extent. There's something we can do about that. So I find this to be empowering and hopeful and frankly, just the only reasonable way to approach health and healing is to think, how can we actually fundamentally address these problems at the root rather than constantly band-aiding and just attempting to suppress symptoms? Yeah. I mean, you know, so many docs now are given lots of drugs uh, to treat uh, lots of symptoms um, versus identifying the root cause of the problem that's happening upstream. Um, why do you think our medical system is set up in that way? There are moments when I'll think like it's pretty nefarious, um, but mostly I think it's a series of accidents. I think that the real crowning achievement of Western medicine was a long time ago. It was really with the advent of antibiotics. And it's like, okay, someone has an infection. It could kill them. We have antibiotics. We can cure it. And this person lives. They're a happy camper. We feel like very potent doctors. And like that was the model that worked in that instance. And I think we keep trying to get back to that with conditions that don't lend themselves to that in the same way. So like, 
um, antihypertensive medications like blood pressure medication is not the cure for high blood pressure. The cure for high blood pressure is to not have high blood pressure through a series of supporting your vasculature and not being insulin resistant and not having excessive um, abdominal adiposity. Um, with mental health issues, we think, okay, depression, it's this genetic chemical imbalance. It's inevitable. And the cure for it is Lexapro. But depression isn't a Lexapro deficiency disorder. It's a compilation of a little bit of genetic predisposition and a whole lot of ways that our physical health, our environment, our fundamental human psycho-spiritual needs are unmet or out of balance and it's manifesting as mental health issues. So Lexapro doesn't really get at the problem completely. And we're overlooking that there are pathways to take to address it. Hey, it's Rob. I want to jump in and take a quick second to say you got to get a coach. It just makes a difference. A coach can offer you perspective and accelerate your goals so much faster. If you want to work with me, head over to robshowcoach.com, fill out an application, and we'll jump on a call. All right, let's get back to the show. I have an interesting lens here with this discussion. It, it, because I've been in Italy for the last 10 months now, um, I am not hearing words that I did hear when I was in the States, for example. As I, you know, I'm 56, I'm 50, I'll be 56. And I never heard ADD, ADHD, LMNOP, bipolar. I, I just, I never heard it, right? And everybody I know has got some acronym on their name right now. They're suffering from anxiety. They've got ADD and ADHD and they're bipolar. It doesn't, I'm not saying it doesn't exist in Italy because I'm sure it does, but it is definitely not a conversation that anybody is having. And it makes me wonder if these diagnoses are based on conversations in a doctor's office, because that's effectively in the field of psychiatry. That's what you're doing. You know, you're you're having a conversation. You're asking about their symptoms. They're they're telling you things, right? Because you're not following them around. You're not doing a blood test to see if there's any low, if there's any low anything, or if you're not doing a brain scan to say, okay, you got bipolar based upon these polls that I did in your MRI. How accurate are these diagnoses? that people are being given by general practitioners who really aren't even psychiatrists, um, be given by psychiatrists who give drugs out all the time. You see where I'm going with this. I do, yeah. So you're absolutely right that mental health issues are not a um, objective, you know, we're not, we're not diagnosing via blood test or brain scan. Um, it's a clinical diagnosis, which is how we say like a doctor sat there and talked to somebody about their history and their symptoms and then arrived at a conclusion. Um, I think that I'm going to take this a little meta, yeah. but I think that the diagnosis is not the problem. Like it's what we are calling depression and anxiety and how, what we think these conditions really are. So, you know, there's, there's certainly variety and quality of diagnosis. I'm probably mediocre. You know, like some people are really, very good at being like, ah, we thought it was PTSD, but it was really OCD, you know, and people are sort of like getting creative about how they're using the, the diagnosis of the DSM, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual or Bible of Mental Health. 
But I think that where I take issue is not this overdiagnosis or what we're calling depression. Is it really clinical depression or is actually, you know, someone just kind of bummed or is this actually clinical anxiety or are they just stressed? Like, I don't really care about the distinctions. I care about our mentality of what we're thinking anxiety or depression is. We're thinking this is a diagnosis. We think it's a disease. Um, we think it's, it has a genetic component and it's somewhat of a destiny or a fate and it's inherent and a fixed trait about somebody. And that's where I think we're getting it wrong. So is there more screening and overdiagnosis right now? Probably, but there's also incredibly high rates of people subjectively connecting with a feeling of anxiety. It's common right now. And I think where we get it wrong is that we're like, oh, I have this genetic destiny, which is anxiety. And so therefore I take a medication for my whole life. And where we could get it more right is to recognize, oh, <clears throat> this is a symptom. This is my body communicating. Something is not right here. And can we let this be a call to action to look under the hood and start to investigate? What's that a balance here? Is this person inflamed? Do they have sleep apnea and they haven't had a good night's sleep in over a decade? Are they micronutrient deficient? Are they on a medication that's creating anxiety as a side effect? Is everything jacked up in their digestive tract? That's common. Um, or do they have no community in their life? Have they been completely estranged from nature? And do they not even give themselves permission to seek and find meaning and purpose in their lives because it feels silly or in, sort of irrational and they'd rather be squarely sitting in skepticism and atheism and that feels cooler and more defensible. And so they don't give themselves permission to have a state of awe at the universe. And I think that these are often the determinants of our mental health issues. And so in one person, based on their genetics, their temperament, their culture, the waters they're swimming in, all of those unmet needs and physical imbalances might show up as depression, might show up as anxiety, but under the hood, there are physical and psychospiritual bases for these symptoms. And that's the level at which we should be addressing them. This is fantastic. Um, so <clears throat> I'm starting to piece some things together here. My, I have a buddy who is a, um, he's an MD and he goes, uh, he's in Italy and he goes to uh, hotels for basically sick Americans. You know, mm -hmm. I, I got a UTI. He's your guy. He's that guy. <laughs> right. And we had a conversation one night. And he said, I said, what do you notice with Americans that you don't see in your practice here? He said, you're all on, on antidepressants. And I said, what's your take on that? He said, you know, I, it's just like in, in Italy, if we're like, if we love you, we love you. If we hate you, we fucking hate you. <laughs> do you know what I mean? He said, it's like in America, you got to be like in this numb like you can't go high, you're manic, you can't go low, you're depressed, you know, you know, it's like you got to just stay in this numb zone. He said, I don't understand that. But as you're speaking, I'm checking the boxes and I'm going community. There's a community here, man. My God. Um, in flames, there's no processed foods. Doesn't exist. They can't get into the EU. They won't allow it. Um, lifestyle. It's all about La Dolce Vita. If I walk outside my door, it's 5.30 right now, I guarantee you that it is, the streets are lined with spritzes. Like everybody is sitting there having a spritz, okay? Um, physical, I do 15,000 steps a day on my Apple Watch, just walking, right? So, and I can go on and on, you get the idea. 
So how much do you think I'm, I'm writing? This is a little bit selfish here, but I'm writing a book on nature, nurture and neighborhood. You, mm-hmm. the, you know, you can't you, you can't change nature. You can't change nurture, mm-hmm. but you can change your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And the area that I'm li- living in now, because I'm in a, you know, in the, the cradle of the Renaissance where it's 2000 years old. So I'm looking at buildings, you know, the building I'm in is, is 700 years old. The, the church that I'm looking at is 700 years old, it took 150 years to build, right? That, na- that neighborhood affects me, affects how I react to things. So do you think that this is a uniquely American, Canadian, Australian issue because they're, you know, because of their neighborhoods or how they're, or how they're set up, or do you think that there are other things that that are at play here? Mm. Yeah, so I agree with everything you're saying. And I mean, I'll add one little, before I even answer your question, I'll add one little caveat, which is that what we know now in terms of the field of epigenetics is that to a little bit of an extent, um, nurture and neighborhood impact nature, which is interesting, you know? How, How so? There's the blueprint of our DNA, but there is such a thing as an epigenetic change. So um, an epi, I don't know, this is like a Greek or Latin suffix or prefix to me. I'm going to Greece tomorrow. So you, so, so, so catch me up. So I'm looking, I can look into that. So basically <laughs> Google couldn't possibly answer this question. We'll wait for you to get to Greece. Okay. So I think that, um, basically there's things called methyl groups where your body in a beautiful machinery sense is constantly scanning the environment and trying to adapt to it. And certainly when a woman is pregnant, um, that's even impacting the the baby's development. So say a pregnant woman is living in a time of famine. Um, It is adaptive for her genes to say, okay, then when we get some food, we're going to store it. We're not going to churn at a high level of metabolism. We're going to store this as adiposity to save. And it's also that environment is impacting the genes of her fetus and telling that fetus, you are being born into a world of famine and so you want to change your metabolism so that you have a better chance of surviving in this world. And if it's a female fetus, she already has the follicles in her little fetal ovaries that go on to become her children. So grandma's environment is impacting grandchild's genes through epigenetics, through methylation that basically people have better analogies for this than I do. It's basically putting a little tag on a string of DNA that either says, express this or don't express this. So it can promote or suppress. And that is a way that our DNA is actually in a dynamic with our environment. You know, um, how woo-woo can I go with you? All the way. Okay, cool. So I was having a conversation with somebody and they were talking about, they brought up the subject of epigenetics and they were saying that, you know, if you're, because I said to him, I said, you know, it's amazing. It's like, I can feel the Renaissance here when I'm walking through the streets. Like I feel like it's, it's weird. I can't explain it, but it's, it's like, it's in, like, you can't not be inspired and alive and engaged and can't wait to wake up the next. Like it's, it's unbelievable. It's overwhelming. And I see it with the tourists every day too. And when I had this conversation with him, he said something interesting. He said, what do you think the reverse of that is? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I don't know. Let's just say that you went into a, you know, you went to Compton and you went in an area where people were getting, you know, shot constantly or, you know, murder, whatever. What do you think that 
air feels like, you know, that palpable air that's in it. So I'd love to know your take on that idea. Oh, I think that's a beautiful concept. So certainly I'm all in on this idea of intergenerational trauma is valid. And part of why it's scientifically, objectively, undeniably valid is epigenetics. But what you're saying is even like a place carries intergenerational, you know, gifts, trauma, trauma, everything that it's been through. It's holding that memory um, in the epigenetics of a place. And I think that's a beautiful concept. And you're a parent of a seven-year-old, I believe. I have a seven-and-a-half-year-old. So we've seen Frozen 2. Um, where Olaf teaches... Except Moana, by the way. Random note, not to interrupt your flow. We couldn't download Moana here. We're like, what? And they're like, I don't know what you're talking about. And we're like, Moana. Turns out, random fact, Moana's a porn star in Italy and Disney wouldn't name it Moana. (laughs) They go to every country and determine whether or not the word is okay. It's called Oceana. Oceana. Okay. So you got the movie, just not Moana. Yeah. I mean, but now I want to see Moana. That's another conversation. It's an incredible movie. I stand by that one. And if you- No, no, no. Now I want to see the porn one is what I'm saying. (laughs) Um. (laughs) All right. I I interrupted your flow. Epigenetics. It's a great name for a porn star. It's true. Right. Um, So, uh, so basically um, Olaf in Frozen 2 teaches us that water holds memory um, things have the ability to be impacted, which is beautiful. And it's part of how we learn and grow and adapt. And it's no surprise that that's the design of genetics. It's the design of places. And, um, and I think that there's maybe even a two-way street here, which is that, um, and you were alluding to this with the earlier question that I still haven't answered about neighborhood and nurture. And in terms of neighborhood is, Florence, Italy impacted by the Renaissance? Yes. And is the design of Florence, Italy conducive to a Renaissance? Also, yes. And so part of the reason it's in the lifeblood in the city is that the constellation of this is how the sun hits the trees and this is how the streets are built and this is how the food grows in the soil here. All of those things come together to promote a certain kind of, um, you know, human exceptional state. And I think that similarly or conversely, when you go to a random McMansion suburb where everyone's in their bloated SUV and they live on a golf course and they feel really socially disconnected from each other, um, I think that is conducive to a certain kind of ennui and low-level depression. And it's because you don't have the vibrancy of 15,000 steps just to do go about your day and coming across all the people living their life at 5 p.m. spritzers. And I think that there's all of these different ways that the design of American towns and cities uh, sets us up to fail with our mental health. You know, it's interesting how <clears throat> when, when the Italians specifically, um, they value their time and their time off and their life at a crazy high level. For example, I'll tell you this quickly. I go yesterday to drop off a shirt to get a dry cleans. Go to the first store. I made the mistake. It's during pause, right? Between one and three. I was like, fuck. Okay. So I go all the way on the other side of town and I go to the other guy and I go to give him the shirt. And he says, no. And I said, Cuso, are you closed? And he said, no, vacanza. So vacanza, vacation. What? I don't understand. And I looked at the sign. Because he's going to the sea in a week, he won't take my shirt 
because he can't get it back to me next week and he doesn't want the business. So I go to the third dry cleaner. Now I'm spending my day. I go to the third, okay, my 15,000 steps. I go to the third dry cleaner at three o'clock at 315 because I know now that they open it, they're closed until three. I get there at 315 and the gate's half up. And so there's a queue of people outside waiting to drop off the thing. And I was like, what time do they open? I look, it says three o'clock, but the gate is halfway. So I stick my head under the gate and I look in and I said, Berto, open. And he says, cinque minutos. He's having a coffee. 10 minutes later, not cinque, 10. I open it up. I come in, I drop my thing down and he looks and he says, I had seven shirts. I look and he says, no. And I said, what's he goes, can't you see I'm full? And I said, what do you mean? He said, I have all this to do. I can't do those seven. And I was, I had this conversation with a buddy of mine and I was like, what the fuck is going on? He's like, he, he knows how much money he's going to make a year. He works as much as he wants to work and no more. He doesn't give a shit what you want. He knows what his life is. He's going to take his break at lunch. He's going to smoke his cigarette. He's going to open at three, three fifteen when he feels like it. And if he doesn't want to take a shirt because he's too full, he's not going to take a shirt. That would, in America, if somebody saw the opportunity, there'd be 14 Goldberg dry cleaning, one hour martinizing, <laughs> right? Yes. And the Yelp reviews don't even get me started. Right. So this is so interesting to me at how um, what you, the work that you're doing is you're saying the, the word for enough in Italian is basta. You're saying basta enough. Let's stop giving more and more drugs. It has a place. If you got a bullet in your head, don't come to me. Right. But we have to stop over medicating and find out where are we inflamed and what's going on. All right. So here's the question. Wait, can what I is, even just reflect? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Please, please. So I think that um, I do think that this is a big part of how we get it twisted in the US, at least that's, that's the place I can speak to, is it's exactly this concept. And part of it is I, I do think that as long as you have your basic needs met, you quickly convert into the demographic where time is your scarcest resource. And maybe a, a follow up to that is your energy. It's not money you know, more money. We like it, you know, for all these reasons. And sometimes money has one particular really incredible utility, which is that it can buy you back time, but money for material goods, money for all these other things, money for status, prestige, um, is garbage values that create misery. And I think that in American culture, we don't have this concept of basta, you know, we, we actually had the concept of never enough and we keep going and to what end? And I think that we miss the, you know, we, we think more, more, more is better. And it turns out it's a more sophisticated goal, but enough is better. And then you buy back some time and spaciousness to just savor this human experience. Yeah. Well, listen, it's a moving target, right? Everybody I talk to, you know, if they're making a hundred thousand a year, they want three times what they're making 300. When they make 300, I want three times what I'm making. So it's a moving target and you're never, ever going to be able to fulfill it. You know, um, Question, what, how does a nice Jewish girl from New York who went to Yale find herself in a non-traditional acupuncture, Ayurveda yoga world? Was it your mom? Was it your dad? Or what was it? I would not say my mom or my dad are, were unconventional in any way. So um, my dad 
tax lawyer, <laughs> my mom, librarian, like the straight and narrow. Um, and I, and I'm you rebelled. I rebelled. I'm the younger of two siblings. My, my older sister is a lawyer. I do think that this is something siblings unconsciously do is in an attempt to distinguish themselves. If someone else is nailing that demographic of like, I am the lawyer, daughter of a lawyer, and you know, I'm smart and I'm ambitious. I was like, I kind of had to do something different, but I also think it's just truly my nature is, you know, and I think it might even relate to the fact that I can't read for shit. Mm-hmm. I, I think differently. I have to acquire information in a different way. I can't do it the same way other people are doing it. So I do it through observation. I do it through questioning. And I think it created a very fertile ground to think differently about what was being handed to me and to rebel. Okay, I want to jump in for 15 seconds and say, if you're an entrepreneur grinding away and not taking time to experience extraordinary things around the world with other entrepreneurs you may want to join us on our next Work Hard, Play Hard Mastermind to Dubai on November 19th. Head over to workhardplayhardexperience.com and fill out an application. Have you heard of and or read um, Bernie Siegel's book, Love, Medicine, and Miracles? No. It's one of the best books I've ever read on this subject. And in short, He's he was an oncologist uh, at Mount Sinai, um, and ninety percent of his patients he had to walk in and say, you know, you got six months to live. But there was a small fifteen to twenty percent of them, somewhere in that range, that just didn't come back to the office. And one day he was like, "Where are these people?" And so he had his front desk girl go see if he can find out if they died or if they're still alive. And there was a significant percentage of them that were alive. And he went and interviewed all of them. And he asked them, what the hell did you do? And he said, well, when you gave me the diagnosis, I said, well, if I'm going to spend, I don't want to do chemo. I don't want to do radiation. And if I'm going to spend the rest of my days, it's not going to be getting chemo or radiation. It's my choice. I'm going to do the shit I want to do. And so he found them very often. There was one, there was themes. And one of the themes was when he went to go, visit them. They were in their garden, gardening, Mm -hmm. and they started doing the things that they loved. So my question for you is what's your thoughts on, I I mean, I think I know the answer to this, but what's your thoughts on how the mind affects the body? And, and this is going to be, you know, this is a question that I don't, I don't want to put you on on an awkward spot. So if you don't want to answer this, feel free not to, but how far do you go when somebody gets a diagnosis and says, I've, you know, you, you've got, you, you need chemo and you need radiation. And that person looks internal and says, you know what? I am going to go down a different road. I'm not doing this. I'm going to, you know, look at the inflammation in my body. I'm going to meditate. I'm going to tell the people I love, I love them. And I'm going to do all the things that I know that's going to put me more in balance, but they have to make a decision. Are you going to get the radiation? Are you going to get the chemo? Because, you know, I'm telling you, the tumor is going to grow. And they go to an alternative doc or they go to the traditional doc. How do you advise someone? And I'm giving you a fictitious case here. Mm. But how do you advise someone? Because I happen to have a friend who just got diagnosed yesterday. And I am uh, along the same lines as you. Um, But how do you advise somebody something like this? Yeah. Oh, I don't have a simple answer. I would say that part of what you're getting at with the, you know, guy who went after his patients that were lost to follow up 
is I think centered around the nocebo effect. And we understand the placebo effect that like, oh, here's this pill. It's a happy pill. It's gonna make you feel better. And sure enough, if they give you a sugar pill, but you're told it's an antidepressant, you know, six to eight weeks later, you're going to be feeling better. Um, and um, that's about, you know, a 30% effect. And so we have that, but we also have the nocebo effect. If someone says to you, you know, you've been taking this antidepressant all this time, but I'm switching it out for the placebo, even if they're lying and you keep taking the exact same medication, you're going to have a relapse of your symptoms. So our expectation is powerful. And, um, and I think that, even just the medical industrial complex is full of nocebos and even a kind of um, everything about that world. I think it's well-meaning mostly it's, 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 they, they understand the medicines and the interventions. They don't understand how to cultivate a healing environment. And so it's somewhat of a good medicine in a poisonous environment and the fluorescent lights, the bad bedside manner, the paper gowns, the sitting on the table, no back support in this power dynamic with a physician who's busy and rushing and staring at a computer. Um, all of that is not giving us our humanity. The garden, on the other hand, is meeting certain needs. And this is why I'm really glad that I'm not in oncology, because as I mentioned earlier, I'm about prevention. Once the shit has hit the fan, it's a different story. And I think if I were in that situation, I would do a hybrid model. I probably would engage with conventional medicine to a certain extent. And I would also do a shit ton of things that I know are the ways to support a body. But I think that the gardeners living a little bit longer, part of it is that health is, I think, an outcome of a combination of different sort of inputs. And sometimes we're not giving our bodies the inputs that they need. And sometimes we're giving our bodies all sorts of inputs that irritate the system. And so if we're living our hustle grinding lives and eating nutritionally bankrupt processed foods that are inflaming us and engineered to be hyperpalatable, and we're chronically sleep deprived and we're staring at screens all day and we don't have community and we don't have movement and we're disconnected from nature, we are gonna get sick. It's just a matter of time. It's, it's, it's not an if, it's a when. And if we can be in the garden and get sunshine and be around the people that we love and get good rest, it's a lot, it's setting you up to have much more vitality. And I think I prefer to do this 20 years before this patient comes to see me and says that they have a tumor. Um, I think that's where it can really be most effective. Once you're already there, I do think at that point, conventional medicine has a role for reacting. All right. I'm going to take you probably where you don't want to go, but I, but I got I to gotta ask this question. When I'm you know, look, I try and do this podcast as honest as I could from my perspective. And right now I happen to be living in Italy. So that's, that, that's a lot of my conversation. <clears throat> Before we moved to Italy, and one of the things other than Stanley Tucci doing Searching for Italy on CNN, um, one of the things that sent us over the edge was we were in, we were last in Los Angeles in Hermosa Beach. And we backed up to my daughter, Sophia's uh, elementary school. And one day we hear, get under the table, get under the table. We're sitting on the back deck and we're like, holy shit, what's going on? And we find out that um, they were doing a shooter drill in her kindergarten class, preparing her to go under the table. Um, if somebody gets shot, how you wrap them and stop the bleeding. And I was like, fuck this. Like, we can't, like, I'm not living like this. My wife is like, we got to do something else. And we made the decision that was one of many, but we made the decision. We don't want to live like this anymore. It's gotten crazy. And we moved here. And since I've been here, I'm watching those shootings happening one after the other. In fact, I 
think we're about this year, 250 mass shootings in America. 250. That didn't exist, right? And I just listened to something on uh, NPR recently. It was with a psychiatrist. And the psychiatrist said, this is a bunch of bullshit that people are saying this is a mental health problem. It isn't. They're not bipolar. These, these are kids that are angry. These are kids that are in an environment that's not supporting them. Do you want to take a stab mm-hmm. at this? Yeah. So, you know, I envy him anyways that you got out. You're in good end. Yep. And I, yeah. I'm, you know, one foot out the door, but where? Is it Costa Rica? Is it Byron Bay, Australia? I think that I'm part of, I think we we exist in part of, you know, some bigger mission. And I think part of the reason I'm here and doing what I do is, um, does on some very indirect level, it's oblique, but it relates to this. So I think I belong here for right now as much as it's completely fucked up. Yep. I think that um, <clears throat> there is, let's just put aside, there is the contagion factor. Like if you are this, um, you know, lacking good relationships, angry, unmoored youth, um, I think you see other kids kind of have a, a twisted form of notoriety and um, glory from shootings and you look up to that. And so I think that's part of the problem. I think that they are contagious. I think they spread like wildfire. I also think that I, I don't think of it as a mental health problem. And I do think that that's a bypass and diverting from the problem. Like what it really is in my mind, and I know this alienates many, many, many people. I do think it's two things. I, I do actually think it's a gun problem. <laughs> I think that it is. Let's just say it. They, they don't they don't have guns here in Italy. Nobody's dying. Nobody's part getting of, shot. And the arguably even more controversial view I hold, and I guess it feels more controversial because this one alienates my bubble. You know, like I don't live in Second Amendment bubble. I, I have friends in that bubble. I care about them deeply. I know about their gun racks. I understand I'm alienating them with my first comment. I'm alienating my fellow citizens in New York City and Brooklyn with this comment. But I think that I actually think on some level, it's a psychiatric medication problem. And this is where we need to roll up our sleeves and be in the nuance because I am not dogmatically saying psych meds are always bad. I'm a psychiatrist. I prescribe psych meds. I have patients who are helped by them. I have found that sometimes they are the keys to the kingdom and get somebody out of a hole so that they can engage with diet, lifestyle, diet and lifestyle practices and actually get themselves on a track towards fulfillment. That said, I suspect that many people in that role of carrying out a mass shooting are in some transitional phase with a psych med. Like they've just gone down in a dose, they've run out, they're discontinuing, they Mm -hmm. went cold turkey off, maybe they've increased their dose, they've changed medication. Because what I've observed in my practice is that regardless of who you are coming in, when you're in a transitional phase with a psych med, usually tapering off, but really any transition, there is a kind of, not for everyone, but for some people, a kind of numb, impulsive, despairing, a lack of sleep, irritable state that people can get into mm. that I think is really lethal. And I've seen my patients are more likely to be the ones who think about turning that on themselves um, than on others. But I think it's of similar quality. And I think there's just something numb and impulsive and irritable about what 
pulling this the chemical carpet out from underneath your brain does that makes people a real danger to themselves and others now when you couple that with the stuff that you work with like inflammation uh etc it's it's a it's a recipe for a really shitty day for somebody so that makes makes perfect sense to me um after you um we're going from po- positive thing to positive thing after you had a miscarriage um they wanted to give you um iv fluids uh in the er and you uh you have sort of very funny said um you know i should have been under the blanket watching jane the virgin um and connecting to myself um it's interesting that there are countries, France is one of them, where a doctor will give you a prescription to go to the sea, um, to relax and get in the sun and relax uh, and enjoy enjoy yourself. But that's not the case. Um, is there any hope on the horizon that things will become less druggy or is this big pharma and is this just people wanting simple solutions um, and it it's just going to get worse? Yeah, I think that there are two there are two factions that are both racing to the finish line. And I think they're both going to win and they're going to think they won. And like, and I think both are going to win in completely different, like two separate consciousnesses on earth. I think that pharma is strong. They're in a good position. I'm, I'm bullish on pharma and I'm also bullish on like this growing tidal wave of people who are like, wait a second, that system, I turned to it when I was sick and I was suffering and it actually didn't help me at all. And looking back now, I realize it actually made me sicker and I'm going to opt out and I'm going to learn how to keep myself well and keep my family well. And I think that movement is also winning. And I think we're almost separating into two consciousnesses. Um, that after my miscarriage, it was, <clears throat> I did end up staying home <laughs> under the blanket, watching Jane the Virgin, eating ginger snaps. And, um, but it's interesting, right? Like it's a judgment call. I'm a physician. So I have certain ideas about what's dangerous, what's safe, what are the risks after miscarriage, but I'm not an OBGYN. I don't know enough about it. So I was trying to suss out from home birth midwives. You know, these are my care providers. So this is already on a hippie end of the spectrum. Yep. I was trying to suss out, like they're telling me, well, okay, you know, you, you miscarried, um, what you need to do is, and I explained the degree of the bleeding and that I was feeling lightheaded when I would stand up and they say, oh, you better go to the ER and get IV fluids. And I know that in this medical, legal, very litigious country that we're in, they have to say that. And because if I were to faint and hit my head, that's on them. You know, why didn't they tell me to go be under medical supervision and get IV fluids? And so it just didn't leave room for a judgment call for me to be like, well, what would you do in this situation? Like how bad are the risks? You know, have we ruled out an ectopic pregnancy? Have we ruled out the risk of a ruptured ectopic? Like, could I bleed out and die right now? Or is, do I just need to rest and hydrate in comfort and in a place that's also, you know, humane and actually going to be supportive of the more psycho-spiritual journey that it is to have a pregnancy loss. And it was hard for me to get that information, even from home birth midwives in this country that like, it was actually a totally valid choice to stay home and rest and be smart about it. And that's for me, you know, in that certain specific set of circumstances, not certainly not medical advice for anybody else going through a medical emergency of any kind. But for me, I had to 
ignore the advice and basically say, I think I know what my body needs right now. And my best path to healing is, is to follow these instincts. I had decided I had ruled out enough of the risk. It's interesting to me. You're, you really have, let's suppose the word, but you really have balls because you're in a community, the, uh, the psychiatric community that has protocols and they have ways that they do things. And there's a expected norm. I, I can only imagine, or maybe, maybe I should ask the question, how are your, how is your interaction or what is your interaction like with your peers, knowing that you're sort of doing things quite differently than the average psychiatrist? <laughs> Fine, thanks. all right Um, I I can speak to that a bit I think that um it's part of why I knew I needed to go to medical school was because I wanted to be able to be my own mechanic I didn't want to take my car to the shop and feel like I was being taken advantage of and not getting the whole truth I wanted to be able to drive my car off the parking lot and be like I'll fix this myself yeah. And, um, and so, you know, that's what medical school gave me that that's an immense gift. Was it worth like all of my chi and the blood, sweat and tears and 10 years and hundreds of thousands of dollars? And I don't know, it's not debatable, but I think that, um, these days my husband is really good at giving me this feedback because here's the thing, this like girl from New York who couldn't read that well and was observing and observing humanity and thinking and thinking and synthesizing thoughts. Um, I've, I'm not burdened by the convention in quite the same way, partly because like, I can't take the time to read it. Like I, I don't, I haven't finished the book of like, what's the consensus? How are people thinking about this? So I have to think independently about how to make sense of the world. And I've been, um, early on certain health things, you know, like not the earliest, but early on, you know, recognizing the role that blood sugar plays in anxiety, recognizing that gut health matters for mental health, recognizing that gluten is a thing or skim milk is not the thing, or that psychedelics are a promising new line of, of treatment. And I get the feedback a lot. That's like, Ellen, like I just read this article in the New York Times and they're saying what you've been saying for 10 years is now true. And I'm like, well, it's, it's always been true. <laughs> it's just like, we, you know, we don't catch up to these things for 10 years. And my husband, keeping me honest always, is like the trouble with being a little bit of an out-of-the-box, unconventional thinker is that um, just around the corner is, is hubris and arrogance. And, um, and I think I do have to catch myself because I trust my instincts so much and I trust my understanding of the human body. Like that is something where I feel like I have a semi-virtuosic understanding of like the workings of it and how it gets out of balance and how we support it. And... I'm going to be wrong a bunch of times in my life. And I just hope it's not in a serious way. And so I do rebel against the convention and I, I don't know, I have to really stay humble and and open to Mm -hmm. really listening for when I need to just trust somebody else's advice. It's great. Do you listen to, or have you heard of Esther Hicks? Yes. Do you love her? Love her. Like I'm obsessed. I can't stop. Yeah. And I'm, I'm going to let people just Google it because it's too weird for this conversation. Like we just Correct. we just went we just went we just went off the deep end, but crazy shit. She's great. All right. So as we, I cannot believe this time has passed as we uh, as we wrap, I'm going to ask you a couple of uh, weirdo questions. And you're like, why is he asking me this? But just roll with it. <laughs> what would your friend say is one of your superpowers? 
Um, <laughs> well, beside the hubris and arrogance of thinking I, I understand health better than the convention, I would say, um, I, I think when I'm at my best, they would say it's listening. And like my favorite way to psychiatrize is just to be in my living room with someone I care about and hold space for what they're going through. So when all the stars align, I can be, um, I can create a very healing container and really listen and really hear somebody. Do you collect anything or have you ever collected anything? Rob, I live in New York City in uh-huh. like not enough square footage. And so right. I am a passionate declutterer. And You're just throwing shit out all the time because you got no I space. It's marvelous when people have like a passion and a collection and like that would just squeeze out our ability to have dishes. So no. <laughs> <laughs> what did people never ask you? But you wish they did. They never ask me about. They ask me about anxiety. They ask me about psychiatry. But they never ask me this question, and I wish they would. I wish I sometimes got the question: What do I believe are the root causes of eating disorders? Mm. Okay. All right. Wish we had more time to dig into that. Right. Next, next uh, episode. We have to do that. The next one. Um, what book? What audio book <laughs> have you re-listened to the most? Um, re-listened to? Yes. So it, 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 I mean, the truth is, I'm not sure if it's indicative of what book is the most meaningful to me, but the truth is it's the book Nonviolent Communication by Marshall Rosenberg. Mm. And partly because I think the teachings are so essential and I think he's so wise. And I think... Either it's not written that clearly or I'm just not getting it, but um, maybe because I'm too violent of a communicator, but Mm -hmm. basically um, I've had to go back to that book three times and I feel like I'm ready. I'm due for another time. Does your husband ever say to you, stop psychoanalyzing me? The way I show up as a holistic, weirdo, witchy psychiatrist in life is not as a someone psychoanalyzing people, but the way I do show up, he wants me to stop. Yes. He wants you to stop. Okay, got it. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, it's his story to tell. You ask him. I'm gonna have to interview him <laughs> yeah. next. What what um, kind of he, what, what kind of works he do? I don't I don't understand what he does. Excel, is that a job? <laughs> he works <laughs> at this point in the, in the a, psychedelic. A, what's that? Did you say he he works with Excel, the spreadsheet? I mean, every time he's tried to explain to me what he does, my eyes glaze over. When I go through, you know, walk by his computer, it's open to an Excel spreadsheet without fail. So, that's so he does job, Excel. as far as I can tell. But he does Got work in the, in the psychedelic industry and education technology. Psychedelic as in psychedelic? Uh, psychedelic as in psychedelic. Well, that is an interesting line. Okay, wow, you're a really interesting girl. Okay, um, last question. If you could... Actually, two questions. If you could send out a push notification to everybody's iPhone or phone, what would it be? Go to bed. Go to bed. Love that. Last question. What do you want to ask me? So, um, I mean, in a way, I want to know what's hard for you to talk about. Oh, God. Never been asked 400 episodes, not that one. What is hard for me to talk about? 
Okay. My dad was an abusive alcoholic that beat me. That saying that isn't hard to say because I've numbed out enough to be able to repeat that. But no one has ever asked me, taken the time to listen, or I have never talked about what it felt like going through that, like the minutia of that, like what it feels like to have the, the man that loves you, his fist hit your face and the, the shame of that, uh, going to school the next day with a black eye and what that feels like, like that I can choke up just, I like, I can't even go much beyond that because I know I'll lose it. So that one, (laughs) you know, that one. Rob, can I just, can we pause for a moment and just honor that, you know, you did approach this topic and it's hard. And um, it's like, there's certainly the shame of it. There's that questioning your lovability and your inherent worth as a human. It's so gaslighty and confusing that one minute somebody loves you and the next minute they're sort of in that, yeah, it's wines and spirits, like the spirit of alcohol has overtaken them and it's a dark spirit and, and just the effect on your nervous system and how scary it is to not know who's coming home and whether there's going to be physical pain or questions of your safety. Terrifying. Involved. It's terrifying. Yeah. Terrifying. On that positive notes, this was one of my favorite episodes. We covered everything. We covered miscarriages, shootings, abuse. Everything. <laughs> I see you. I see you. Um, I see you. This was awesome. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people that are listening? If if this message resonates with people, if they want a different approach to managing anxiety, mental health in general, my hope is that my book, which is called The Anatomy of Anxiety, can be a useful tool. It's really the distillation of my life's work and all of these rebellious, weird approaches to mental health in one 250-page book. And so, yeah, that's that's I suppose that's my ask, but I really hope it's my offering. Amazing. Okay, we'll link everything up in the show notes. Thanks for taking the time to do this. Thank you, Rob. This has been a pleasure. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live. 